my dad kindly set us up with his accountant to have a long lunch. Uh, yes. <laughs> long lunch and a bottle of wine. To nut out all of the things we needed to be across. I think it was a warning. Time. Like, don't go into this eyes closed. You know, you girls are young. Most businesses fail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It's sadly true, but yes. <laughs> um, accountants are very risk averse. He planned you to feed on the ground. And let's be honest, he was doing Amanda's dad a massive favour because he would have sat across the table from these, you know, 20-something-year-old girls thinking, what chance do they have? <laughs> Welcome to Getting to the Heart of Business, brought to you by The Online Co, where we believe the best way to help small and medium businesses grow is by putting people first. I'm James Parnwell, and today you'll meet the founders of ActiveAbility, a respected disability services organisation that operates out of three cities across Australia's east coast. Cara Foscolo and Amanda Siman are two amazingly determined women who've built a very innovative business from scratch at a young age. They don't like to talk themselves up, but if you ask me, it's fair to say they've been pioneers in their industry. With me is my co-host and marketing pro, Jess Caluso. G'day, Jess. Hey, James. Uh, do you have any funny baby juggling at work stories? I do. I've got an 11-month-old or nearly 12-month-old daughter. And I mean, as you know, we all work from home. So... Most of my stories revolve around going, okay, I've got a meeting with a client at 1pm. <laughs> my daughter is normally really awake at 1pm. How am I going to make sure she's asleep? So <laughs> I've sort of worked the day backwards from that meeting time <laughs> and make sure I have enough activities and get everything sorted so that she's asleep <laughs> by 1pm. Right. So there's been, there's been a few meetings, which, and I mean, you are my boss, so I don't know if I should confess this, <laughs> but there's a few meetings where, uh, you know, five minutes to go before the meeting, I'm, I'm sweating thinking, I think I'm going to make it, but I may not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done it somehow. Yeah. How about you, James? Yeah, well, I've done the work from home thing for some time now. And some years ago when my eldest daughter was maybe two, she was pushing around on one of those little trikes, one of those little plastic things they push themselves around the house on oh yes, yes and my office was in a converted garage and it had a little step down into the garage so I'm on a phone call with a client in Perth I don't remember what the topic was but we were talking fairly deeply about something and she's essentially driven her trike off the edge, landed, smashed her head on the ground. Oh, dear. And then absolutely screamed the house down. <laughs> and there was no, there was absolutely no way I could cover it. No, it's not one of those. Make it work, <laughs> hold her. And it was basically, I'm so sorry, I have to go. And I'll call you back. <laughs> <laughs> it was fairly awkward. But, well, you know... Um, thankfully, my kids are older now and we've been able to put in a few more boundaries like keep the door shut. That would have been a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure that sort of thing doesn't happen. But uh, most people are understanding and forgiving and, uh, and will give you a second yeah. chance if these things happen. I think I, sh I should ask you and April for a few more tips, I think. <laughs> I mean, well, you've never picked up on me being late, so... No, that's I've, true. I've managed, yes, well you know, done. touch wood, I've managed it so far. <laughs> well, in today's interview, you'll hear how Cara and Amanda have had to do a lot of that juggling act. They're both young mums. They're running a business that's highly complex, specialising in exercise physiology, dietetics and physiotherapy for people with intellectual disabilities, mental health and neurological conditions. 
I think a lot of you will relate to their experiences. Although it's a unique industry, they're dealing with the same kinds of challenges many of us do, like struggling to find balance between work time and family time and navigating constant change. Ten years ago, at the University of Sydney, a research project was underway, looking at how exercise could help people with intellectual disabilities. It was part of a new and emerging industry called exercise physiology. The project was a hit. 100 participants got stuck into things like dancing, games, running on the treadmill during their favourite TV shows, playing modified sport. In fact, they loved it so much that at the end they're all asking, how do we keep the magic going? Well, thankfully, two of the young research assistants on the project answered that call. Cara Foscolo and Amanda Saman birthed a business called ActiveAbility, which now operates out of three different cities. And I'm with them today to hear the rest of their amazing story. Cara and Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. So you guys went to uni together. Is that where you became friends? It is, absolutely. We did our masters together at the University of Sydney in 2010, 11. And you had zero intentions of becoming business people? For me, absolutely none. Yes. So what, absolutely. what, what was your family like? What, what, what did your parents do? My dad is a music teacher, a high school music teacher, oh, cool. and he's now retired, but at the same school for 40 odd years. So there was a strong upbringing in being reliable yeah. and doing really, really well at what you do, but not really moving around and not taking too much risk. Okay. A low risk family? Definitely. Yeah, and Amanda, your family was a bit more on the business side? Yes, so my parents owned a fruit providoring business and oh, then right. nice. made the leap from that into cafes. And most of my extended family, or not most, but a lot of them have businesses as well. So I had a little bit of an interest, but I still, if you would ask me then, would I be doing what we're doing now? The answer would have been no. Right, so you're, you're in a class of other people studying the same thing and they're all going down the medical route. Yeah, yeah allied health. And I guess there's a kind of an inertia to go in that direction. And, but then this research project came up. Yeah, so at the time, exercise physiology was and still is an emerging therapy. So job opportunities in the industry 10 years ago were far less than what they are now. So to do what we wanted to do, work in disability, there wasn't an employer out there. Right, so opportunity was limited. Absolutely. And I feel like the dream was to work in cardiac rehab in a hospital. That's what everyone wanted to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When I was at uni, everybody had this, there was a kind of group think around, this is what we all want to do. And yes. I ended up doing something radically different as well. So tell us more about this research project. Yeah, so it was advertised at the university. And so it came up in ex-student circles that there was this job opportunity. The role looked it was a lot of fun, but um, basically our primary role was rolling out exercise interventions to adults with intellectual disability. Um, and we had two different groups. So we were basically trying to compare, does a group typical boot camp model work better or worse than an individualized exercise program? And so we did that all around Sydney. And what was the result? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be absolutely honest, it's not completely finished, but anecdotally, the result was that it depends on the individual. <laughs> it depends on their disability and yeah. their personality like anyone else um, as to the environment in which they would prefer to be physically active. And you know? I, I think that's even more true in disability because we have clients who don't like to um, work in loud spaces. Of course, And yeah. so 
straight away group environment for exercise is cancelled out most of the time in that circumstance. So it was very much needing to be an individualised approach. Okay. Now you mentioned fun, Amanda. Was fun an expectation? Absolutely. We were definitely selected because we convinced those that we (laughs) needed to convince that we could make exercise the opposite to what people think of when they think of exercise. Oftentimes, if you use the word exercise with our participants, they would actually not engage. Yeah, you can't use the E word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so what it implies I've got to run for five There would have been some sort of previous negative experience right. so they weren't willing to open themselves up to another experience that may be similar. So, you know, we would use phrases like, hey, I'm going to come and um, see you on Tuesday and I thought we might go for a walk and have a chat and get to know each other better. Things like that. It might have been that they loved reading books and would often go to the local library. So we incorporated physical activity into that task. Okay. So it was looking for the opportunities to embed physical activity or exercise into what they were already doing, into their routine. And then utilizing um, other opportunities to, yeah, put in games and dance and things like that. The reality is that exercise is not always fun and it can sometimes be hard. And so um, people who understand the benefits of exercise will often look past that Yes. And choose to engage in it regardless. But for people with disability, they have the added barrier of um, a cognitive impairment or a, a lack of understanding to the benefits. So to explain to someone the benefits would be no use within this population group. Okay. We need to just make it an activity, a social situation, a community based situation in many ways that they just look forward to in their week. So you guys have enjoyed and had fun in the process but the participants have loved it too and you've reached the end and then there's there's some demand there absolutely so when we finished we had a lot of the project participants asking how they could access the service on an ongoing basis and we couldn't really find an answer so we decided to formulate that ourselves and give it a go. This is like the step out of the boat moment you're taking a a step into the risk I suppose. Cara was your family supportive of that? Absolutely I have to say though Amanda and I are both not risk takers. Okay. (laughs) Um, We have learnt to be but we both worked if not full-time close to full-time throughout this whole process in other roles. So this was a little hobby for us at first. So at the time, it really didn't feel like a risk. There was no upfront financial requirement. Just time? Just our time. Yeah. And your energy. And you were young and enthusiastic. Yeah. And and enjoying it. We were living at home, didn't have a lot of overhead costs. So it was, let's just see how this goes. Let's just take it one step at a time. So active ability doesn't exist yet. It's coming. It's an idea. Yes, it's an idea. It's, the name probably doesn't exist. What, what was step one? Really what it looked like was putting some paperwork together. We first had to agree on what a partnership looked like because at the time, whilst we both had work, we had varying workload. I think I was... Oh, God, you were asking the tough question. <laughs> I think welcome. Amanda had more days of work than I did. Yes, and Cara was seeing more clients in the business than I was. So we had okay. to figure out, well, how do we make that fair and equitable mm. that Cara's seeing, I don't know, 60% of the clients and I'm only seeing yeah. 40%. And then there's, 
you know, how, how do we, we figure sort that out, out the sweat equity? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that I guess was the first component of where we started. The second part was as exercise physiologists, we need to have safety covered. So, Ah, you know, are we assessing our clients appropriately for their risk? What paperwork and resources do we need? Consent forms, you know, just all those basics that you walk into in any other exercise clinic and that's already developed. Okay. We also had to figure out how to overcome the barrier of when you work in an exercise physiology clinic, your next client brings themselves in, they're motivated to be there, they, they can sign their own paperwork. But we were sometimes going into a group home because mum who lives in Queensland asked us to. And so we had to figure out, you know, getting consent from another state or um, getting someone to sign a document that doesn't own a computer. Um, There was lots of things that we didn't kind of anticipate Mm -hmm. um, that needed to be worked through. And I think the final step, um, my dad kindly set us up with his accountant to have a long lunch. Uh, Yes, (laughs) long lunch and a bottle of wine. Yes, Um, (laughs) to to nut out all of the things we needed to be across. I guess to um. I think it was a warning, like don't go into this eyes closed. You know, you girls are young. You're most businesses fail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's it's sadly true, but yes, <laughs> um, accountants are very risk averse, right? So he he planned you to feed on the ground. Absolutely. He, he obviously did that well, not in the discouraging way, because you're still here. And let's be honest. In retrospect, he was absolutely doing Amanda's dad a massive favour because he would have <laughs> sat across the table from these, you know, twenty-something-year-old girls, thinking, "What chance do they have?" <laughs> So he was very kind to give his time. (laughs) Just to step back, when you're in high school or even as kids, was there a a sporting interest or or some passion that's gotten you on this track to start with? I think there is for most people who study exercise science or exercise physiology. Great. Um, You loved PDHP at high school. Yeah. Did well in PDHP in my HSC. We'll do an exercise science degree. Okay. Don't know what that looks like after that, but yeah. I'll, I'll give it a go so and see where we end up. So what's your sport? Swimming and water polo for me. Swimming? Yeah, Yeah, cool. swimming and tennis for me, but, you know, really loved the touch and the Oz tag at school. Okay. So you've been running classes in the research project. It's been a lot of fun. There's an opportunity to come out of it and then you kind of slam into a red tape brick wall. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. So the reality of the research project was it had money behind it. There was funds to pay us (laughs) to go and deliver these services. And we then had to understand how the disability world was funded, which at the time was complicated to say the least. Mm -hmm. So we had some participants who were able to use private funds so they were paying for their own services we had some who were being funded through aging disability and home care we had others who had random bits of funding so it was complicated and confusing um (laughs) but we got there we were introducing this idea of complexity fairly early on right there's also the complexity of the people with the disability and all of varying levels of that and the NDIS hasn't even started yet which adds a whole nother layer mm-hmm. of complexity. Yeah. Tell us about the NDIS for those who don't understand it. The NDIS is the National Disability Insurance Scheme and essentially it is a federal and state funded scheme so that everyone living with a disability in Australia can access a fair and equitable service. Previous to that services were state based and so you know, there were horrible stories about people 
feeling like they had to move states because they had a child with a disability and they could access better care in another state of our country. Because we were in the disability space, we were hearing about this big thing that was coming. And basically the message was pretty clear. Everything is going to be privatised. So you either have your own business or you are going to be employed by one of the NGOs. And we had active ability. It was very early days, but we thought, okay, let's just see where this takes us. The goal originally working at ADAC was to implement exercise at these residential facilities, but what it progressed into was to transition them out. So yeah, I just want to clarify a couple of terms. NGO is a non-government organisation. Yes. And ADAC? Ageing, disability and home care. So yeah. they're leaving, they're moving into community homes. So we're going from a couple of hundred people living on one site to living in houses of a maximum of five people. They have complex disability. They have paperwork a mile high. Mm. They'd only seen a GP that has known them for 20 odd years. These are people who were in their 50s, 60s and had been living on site in some situations since they were 12 years old. Um, They knew what every day looked like. It was just very consistent, which in disability is often key. Um, And so part of transitioning them was literally getting out of our heads everything that we knew about this person and what we had trialled and what worked and what didn't so that we could hand that over to someone else. So in the final 18 months to two years, it was working with 300 people, then six months later working with 200 people and then 150 until we were told your services are no longer needed. And that's when <laughs> when things got real. Everything was changing. And, and this was the NDIS and freight train? And this was the NDIS yeah. freight train. That's right. We had to somehow figure out how to get registered. We had to figure out how do we get participants because the key difference with the NDIS was that the funding instead of sitting with NGOs or with ADAC now sat with the individual person and they could go out and choose whoever they wanted to provide their services. So just on that, you've rolled that out in a very quick sentence. It's a massive change. Huge. That previously an organisation would be given X dollars and trusted, entrusted to spend that appropriately on the people that needed it. Correct. Now that money's been given to the people that need it who are then going to choose how they want to spend that. Absolutely. So it's a really important shift because it's putting the control in the hands of the people that should have the control. Mm-hmm. But it's a massive shift. <laughs> and um, it's changed the landscape completely, particularly for the businesses that are providing these services. Absolutely. Because where they didn't need to think about marketing at all, all of a sudden they've got to become marketers. That's We've right. got to go and find clients. And in the first 12 months, we saw quite a few NGOs fold because of that. They didn't have any processes or procedures or decisions made with respect to paid marketing. Yeah, no experience. Yes. And I think some of the big NGOs, the agility was maybe a little bit difficult to to turn such a huge organization on its head, whereas we were small and agile and we made changes and implemented them within an hour sometimes yeah (laughs) so we're five or six years in now to the ndis five yeah it's still shaking itself out would that be fair to say it's described as a plane that is flying but it's still being built yeah (laughs) as it's flying do we need a left wing (laughs) (laughs) absolutely so that's how it feels yes the complexity is a bit of a theme here you're dealing with fast changes ongoingly Absolutely. So we're dealing with changes to what we can provide, how we can provide it, and what funding allows us to provide it. Um, We're even dealing with complexities related to getting paid. 
That was a major teething issue for heaps of providers was this huge backlog of unpaid invoices, still needing to pay your staff and all of your expenses. Yeah. It was really quite complicated. So cash flow is one of the main head- headaches that business owners deal with. It costs a lot of sleep. But the other thing you're wrestling with is a rapidly growing business. And industry. Right. So yeah, you're kind of riding the wave. Doing great work, which is causing lots of demand, which, you know, you get all the growth headaches. Absolutely. We recognised very early that we were therapists and therapists first and not business owners. And so the help that we needed wasn't in how to provide a service. It was how to put things in place or what do we need to put in place so that we can remain practising and not have our company fall apart. Yes. How can we scale without losing the quality that, yeah, okay. that we know that we were known for? We were lucky that when that state government funding tap turned off, Um, a lot of our clients did come back to us Um, and so we went from no money to slowly building the business back up again and we had to figure out how to scale that quite quickly. You know when looking at what normal business growth should look like we're reading information that suggests 10 to 20 percent growth year on year and we're looking at 360 percent growth. So there was no readily available content for us that really matched our situation. So, Amanda, you you raised the scaling question without compromising quality. And I imagine that that you'll wrestle with that the rest of your business life. Absolutely. uh, At this point, no doubt you've solved a part of that puzzle. Tell us what that looks like at this stage of your journey. The right recruitment at the right time is, is probably quite key to us being able to scale effectively. We do have lots of ties and links within the exercise physiology profession. Cara and I were both working part-time at the University of Sydney for a while, so we saw some amazing graduates coming through okay. and we made sure that we... Yeah, grabbed them. We put them job first, yeah. <laughs> um, so we had a really great recruitment tap, which was fantastic um, and an, an amazing opportunity. I think as well, we really believe that skill can be taught and it's it, if you have never worked with a person with a disability, it can be sometimes like a brand new situation, even for a really qualified or experienced therapist. Um, if you've never worked with someone nonverbal before, for example, it, you've got to think about how you communicate entirely. And how they communicate with you. A lot to do with therapy, especially exercise, is safety. So if they're not able to tell you how they feel, right. you know, there is risk involved. Absolutely. And so we, we really believe that if someone has their heart in the right place, we can teach some of that skill. Yeah. We can provide that disability expertise but we can't teach the compassion and the drive to want to support someone with a disability. You can't teach integrity. Like we, yeah. we, we, uh, we often talk about hiring the right people and then training them with skill. Yes. If they come with skill, that's great. Added bonus. But hiring the wrong person with skill uh, is dangerous. You give yourself Couldn't all sorts agree of problems. More. Yeah. I think also in therapy and in my opinion, even more so in disability, there's this overwhelming fatigue you know, you're taking on right. a lot. You're working with people in some cases who understand their life expectancy based on their diagnosis. We have a lot of clients who have chronic, serious mental illness, depression associated with their diagnoses as well. Okay. So we need to be hiring very resilient people mm. as well. People with high self-efficacy, um, people who understand the importance of looking after themselves. Okay. Our best recruits have been networking recruits, yeah. not the 
the cold call seek ad, yeah. t- generally speaking. <laughs> yeah, it's just hard in an interview yeah. to get a sense of the quality of the person. What's their character like? Absolutely. It's not impossible. It's just more difficult. Uh, so you, you, you've got business coaches involved? We have had a couple over the years. We needed to understand how other people had done that. How mm. do we, what processes and systems do we need in place to make sure that everyone that comes on board is providing that level and quality of service? Mm-hmm. Um, Checks think... and balances everywhere, all within the business models and processes. Yeah, really pulling apart what it is that we do and making a process out of it and getting it actually written down and systemized so that someone else could follow that so we started with someone who could help us systematize and kind of figure out our processes and then we switched to someone who had expertise in marketing and we quickly realized what we were doing at the time was terrible (laughs) (laughs) and it wasn't maximizing the opportunity (laughs) oh that's a good word yes (laughs) that's a good way to say it are you receiving seo emails all during the week from random people offering to do some service that you don't really understand? Well, you'll never guess. We get them as well, and we do SEO. There's a myth out there that essentially you can trick Google into making your website on the first page and that it'll get you loads of business and it'll be fantastic forevermore. Unfortunately, that idea is nonsense. The truth about SEO is that when somebody types in your keyword and they're looking for your product or service, that you need to provide the very best information to that person. This is where we talk about putting people first. Your website needs to be fantastic. It needs to talk to that person, solve their problem, and be super helpful. This is just one of the ideas we talk about in our digital marketing playbook, where we come across and look at a holistic digital marketing plan for you. If you need help with SEO or your overall digital marketing planning, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can book a quick chat at theonlineco.net. So we've been working with ActiveAbility on your digital marketing. And when we started, we spent a fair bit of time figuring out who your target customers were. Can you tell us a little bit how we've divided that up and who it is that you're trying to talk to? Sure. So although we provide a service in order to support our clients to achieve their goal, some of our clients aren't able to set up their own services. So the people who are looking for our services are their family members or a support coordinator. In terms of marketing strategy, you have to talk to both. But essentially a support coordinator could be worth 5, 10, 50, 100 different end users, whereas a participant is one. So the value of one over the other is could be substantially different. Yeah, that's right. And so for us, it was a matter of having a conversation about, well, if a support coordinator is looking for a service, are they going to be attracted because they like the look of the service and it's naturally attracting to them as a person? Or are they going to have their particular client at the forefront of their decision making. And I might just add that the role of the support coordinator is not to make the decision, it's to offer options. Yes, okay. And it is hard to find that right balance of marketing in the health industry because you wanna make sure that it is appropriate and that it's the right message because ultimately we are providing a really important service often to really vulnerable people. And we wanna make sure that we are staying true to that. Um, I think that Amanda touched on a really good point um, that has really underpinned our business from day one, 
is that there's almost this unspoken rule that businesses providing health-based services should not be successful. By putting the client first, it means giving too much of yourself. And so as a leader or as as managers, um, I think that that is what we struggle with because this is an insurance scheme Mm. essentially. So, you know, money's not flying left, right and centre. So we will often recommend a certain amount of funding for one of our clients and then what comes back is a third of that. So essentially on a day-to-day basis, our team members are working out how to do more with less. Mm. And so supporting them to do that can sometimes be a real challenge because if our business doesn't make profit, we're not going to be here in 10 years' time to continue doing good work. Because if you don't have a profit margin, you stop helping people. That's like right. it's, it's, There's a point which it's like, no, well, we're not helping anybody anymore. Yes. So you have to be a good steward of that. Mm. And then, the, I don't know, there's potentially a, a feeling of guilt saying, you know, we're making money in a health industry and maybe we shouldn't be. Absolutely. And um, probably just got to let go of that and say, you know, we're making the difference in thousands of people's lives. Yeah. Yes. And that is absolutely what we're doing and what we are aiming to achieve. But yeah, it sometimes is difficult. Really what we needed to focus on was learning how to lead people properly. Amanda and I often get stuck in the day-to-day. We find it really hard to find time to do that sky thinking work. And when you are stuck in the day-to-day, you're absorbed. And it also affects your ability to lead because as a leader, I really do believe that you need to have the long ball game Mm. in mind so I think if anything that's really where we're sitting at the moment really trying to get out of the everyday we don't provide the direct services to our clients Amanda and myself we actually haven't done that since about 2016 and that was a clear goal from the outset of ours but we're still stuck in the everyday and I think that is tied to the fact that we've grown very quickly Our goals we typically set was 25% growth and then we ended up with 360% growth. So that's the level of scale we're talking about. And whilst we have progressed so far with respect to taking ourselves out of particular roles, there's still so much more. And And it's hard to let go. Well, that's that's, That's what I was going to say. You can often pick up the new things you need to do and not drop the old things. And that's where you find yourself in the poo, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Because you're not thinking big picture anymore. You're just nose to the grindstone. Mm. And then you sort of drive yourself south with your headspace, but also emotionally you start to take a toll because you're just Absolutely. at it all the time. At the beginning of the NDIS rollout, as exercise physiologists, we felt really strongly about being the only ones to explain what our service is. And they were long, drawn-out conversations, 45-minute phone calls because yeah, wow. yeah. a lot of the time we were a soundboard to frustrated parents or adult siblings. So that was a role that we couldn't imagine anyone else doing. Yeah. It's really funny because every time we let something go and we, you know, have someone in the team take that responsibility on, you just have this moment to go, oh, so good. (laughs) Should have done that three months ago. But then we seem to still sometimes find ourselves going, oh, we should have done that three months ago. Like it doesn't get any easier for me anyway. 
um, to no, think, I, I what is like it that the, I need you're, to You're the frog in the kettle and it just, the, boil, the temperature rises so slowly you don't realise until yes. all of a sudden you're boiling and you go, oh, I need to drop things and then you can lower the temperature again. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is definitely an ongoing process. I think the complexity of managing the everyday of our business is that we provide our mobile service. In not only bringing the experience, but we also strongly believe that in order to implement a successful therapy into our um, participants' lives, it needs to be done in their own environments. So the clinicians provide services in particular radiuses and they receive clients based on that radius. So my dietitian in the inner west may not receive a referral for two months, but then may get three months worth of quota in two weeks. Yeah. And so it's, <laughs> it's really where we're stuck at the moment is managing the everyday because of that very complexity. We have 65 team members in total at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that is a combination of contractors and employees. And we actually provide three different therapy services within our team. So we've grown from um, providing exercise physiology services to also dietetics and physiotherapy services. And we feel that those three therapies as a team, as well as the large allied health team work really well to support our clients to achieve their goals. And you're located in Sydney, Wollongong and the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Yeah, that's right. We've grown very organically and it's been a a fantastic experience for us to have team members move out of Sydney but want to stay working with the team. And so that's really how those other cities have come about. Now, you've both got small children. We're talking about complexity, adding no sleep and (laughs) diminished sleep and, and all of that into the mix is another factor. How do you guys deal with that? Great question. I think we were both very naive in thinking that in owning our own business, it would facilitate and make becoming a mum easier. Um, We had the business well before we had children and it absolutely has its pros, but at the time of having a baby, it's an absolute... um, it's difficult. I wanted to say bird and I was like, that's terrible. Um, yeah, it's it's a real challenge to find a balance and I don't think that we're there yet. We are lucky that we have each other though. I don't know, hats off to the female business owners that are doing it on their own mm. and having children mm. because we definitely um, share the load and pick up when one has a baby and then when the other. <laughs> yeah, we're lucky enough that that hasn't coincided at this point. <laughs> Not allowed babies at the same time. That's yeah. right. Um, but having a family and wanting to provide for my family was the number one reason for me to have a business. Yeah. But I'm now at the point where it's the number one thing that's keeping me from my family. Okay. So it's definitely part of the complexities at this moment because we have small children and because they grow and change so quickly and yeah. so it becomes more obvious when you miss things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My son said to me yesterday, when are you going to come and pick me up from preschool? Yeah, right. So, um, and I need to make a promise and I need to keep it. Yeah. Um, but the, the benefits, you know, because of the setup of our businesses, we work from home. So we have home offices Um, unless you know we're on the road meeting with our wonderful team members we can start the day 
from um, the office that we have in our homes or from our local cafe, wherever we choose. But it means that if my family is at home, I can stop and have lunch with them. So there are certainly benefits as well. Yeah, and I think, Amanda, you said it's complex. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult, I think, was what you said. Yeah. It's difficult. I have my son in October. And so he's five months old. Oh God, that's quick. <laughs> and <laughs> we had a plan that we would not need to recruit until he was sort of hopefully six months old, and that did not happen. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember um, going to meet with someone um, for an interview and then having to breastfeed when he was five weeks old in the interview and just thinking, oh, my gosh. <laughs> how is this happening um yeah we both took our laptops to the hospital um I do think though I'm really proud of working for myself I'm really proud of of having a business that can now sustain me financially um so I think there is a fine line between resenting the fact that you need to take your laptop to the hospital but also being proud that as a female business owner I have made a means for myself, which means that I have work to take to yeah. the hospital. And that's why I don't think that I've got it quite right yet because... We're still working on that. Yeah, because <laughs> I was the one that took the laptop to the hospital. Yeah, when, when you had a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, w- I could have left it at home. Yeah. So I know that team members of ours have commented that the business is another of our children. You know, and it was our first child as well. So, well, your dad's accountant uh, Amanda said uh, most businesses fail in the first year, and here you are, all these years down the track, and you haven't. So, well done on that. And um, you. you're dealing with things that we're all trying to figure out: how does work, work and life work together? How do we grow? How do we manage the growth? How do we keep the quality there while still growing? So thank you so much for your vulnerability in sharing the, you know, the, the, the challenges that you're facing, but also in sharing your story of what the wonderful thing you're doing for you know, Australians who really need your help and support. So thank you guys for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That was Cara Foscolo and Amanda Saman from ActiveAbility. And you can find out more about their services at activeability.com.au. So James... Cara and Amanda are are really assertive marketers and they do a lot of marketing and they get good results. And I'd I'd like to get your thoughts on being assertive and aggressive with your marketing. Yeah, well, I mean, they're in a growth industry. So it's almost like there's a land grab as the NDIS rolls out that they're able to take chunks of the market. They're really well positioned to do that at the start. Uh, But rather than letting the work just sort of roll in, they've said, all right, let's grow and let's grow fast. So then they've put strong marketing in place, set up sales processes on the back of that to convert the leads into sales and uh, and it's working really well for them. Uh, I think the first thing they're doing right is is some proper planning. So to put a 12-month plan in place and break it up into 90-day milestones. And then they're doing multi-channel marketing. So they're marketing across the different avenues in digital. And when we think about avenues, I like the sort of roads analogy in that in a city, there's typically three or four major roads and all the traffic's there. And there's all the little roads as well, and they're valuable. But in digital, there's really only a couple of main roads. There's Google, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and email. 
and it's likely that you're going to be able to cover almost all of your target market with with just with those. Now, I'm not ruling out the small roads. They can be useful in certain cases. For example, TikTok might be great if you're talking to teenagers, but if you're not talking to teenagers, potentially <laughs> don't bother. Great. <laughs> yeah. So they do really strong Google marketing, mm. both paid and, and SEO, and they've identified the strategy that they're going to do and, and they're rolling it out and, and reaping the benefits. They're also doing some really assertive uh, social media marketing. Um, what are your thoughts on, on paid and organic social media marketing, Jess? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a phrase that goes around that you know, social media is pay to play. And really that rings true these days. So, you, you know, you do have to do the paid advertising on social media to get results, but you also have to be doing the organic as well. They go hand in hand. So one feeds the other and that they work together. So what these guys are doing organically, so posting regularly, engaging with their audience, that helps to feed and support what they're doing from a paid perspective. So those new people who they're reaching from a paid perspective are seeing what's happening on the organic side. And it sort of has some some worth to that new paid audience where they see what's happening organically and it it almost like ticks a little box in your mind to go okay yep I like what these guys are doing here using social media organically and doing the paid advertising as well is really the way to use social media most effectively yes not one yeah you, but both. yeah doing them together like that is going to give you better results they add to each other there's a there's a synergy one plus one equals three yeah uh, this is the type of thing that we help people with our playbook. So we, uh, we spend a fair bit of time putting together the plan, uh, reviewing competitors as well as, you know, what is it you should be saying? What's your voice? And then it all turns into a 12-month rollout plan. Coming up next episode, you'll meet Rowan Kunz, a guy who during COVID lockdown helped high school students across the state by rapidly curating a website of YouTube videos where you could learn pretty much everything in the HSC curriculum. Rowan's the head of a student coaching and mentoring business called Art of Smart, and his business is helping a generation of young people to succeed in a world that's rapidly changing. So this episode of Getting to the Heart of Business was brought to you by The Online Co, produced by Claire Bruce, music by Harry Parnwell. You can find us at theonlineco.net. If this episode would be helpful to someone you know, feel free to share it, subscribe, leave us a review, and we'd love to say hello in our Facebook group. Music.